Rhonda Jimerson and I met as members of the Air Force Survivor Advocacy Council. Her brother, Major Troy Trojan Gilbert, was an F-16 pilot with over 1,000 flying hours. He was married with five children. He graduated from Texas Tech in 1993 with a degree in international economics. On November 27, 2006, his plane crashed in Iraq while he was protecting Americans whose helicopter had crashed. His body was ejected from the plane and immediately found and taken by Al-Qaeda. They made videos in celebration and kept his body for 10 years. Finally, on October 3, 2016, his body was returned home. This podcast with Rhonda is about her fight to get her brother's entire body home. She shares her struggles as a sister to support her parents and to Troy's wife and children. She finished up with her faith and how she's persevered through one disappointment after another. Thank you for tuning in to Patriot to the Core podcast, episode number 79. I hope you enjoy. So, Rhonda, what was your relationship like with Troy? As a child or as an adult? They were very different. Yeah, well, (laughs) tell us the difference. What was it like growing up with him? And I'm not sure who was older either. Uh, Troy was 18 months older than me. Okay. And my father was in the Air Force, and we moved every three years. Uh, We always tended to move in May as soon as school let out. So there were many summers where all Troy and I had were each other. And so there were summers where we were best friends. And there were summers where we went through puberty together and were not best friends. Um, so we, we did a lot of things together. We were constantly together and just whether it was swimming or, you know, down at the neighbor's house or riding bikes through the, all over base, uh, we were together. Um, as he got older, he was very handsome and all of the girls loved him. So junior high, high school, um, he was, uh, very active with his friends at that time. And, uh, so we drifted apart as most, most kids do. Um, as I got, as we got older and became adults, especially when he went into the air force, he is a natural born leader. And um, sometimes I don't follow well. <laughs> so he would try to encourage me to um, to make life choices that he thought was appropriate. And I tended to go the opposite direction. <laughs> Wasn't there, there's an awesome picture of him playing baseball. Yes. I'm guessing he was about 11 or 12. I can't remember now, but that one where he's, he's the only one looking up in the sky. We, what was that about? Yeah, that was um, that was down in Del Rio, Texas. At um, is it Laughlin? No, it's not Laughlin. Anyways, can't remember the base. I think it's Laughlin Air Force Base, and um, it's the whole team is sitting there, and he has his eyes on the little trainers that are flying all around us, and all he could do, he just wanted to look up. His eyes were always on the sky. He wanted to be a pilot. He would go down to the flight line and sit, ride his bike down to the flight line and sit and watch the planes take off. He was always, always thinking about it. Yeah, I think it was like an official team photo. Yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a funny picture. It's a good one. It is. (laughs) But that, you know, since since he was young, he always wanted to fly. Okay, let's fast forward now on his final deployment. Why was he on that deployment? Because he had just had twins born, correct? His fourth and fifth children? Yes, yes, they had just been born. So that came about because 
At the time, he was at Luke Air Force Base, and he was serving under General Robin Rand. And General Rand was taking over as commander of the 332nd Air Expeditionary Wing at Balad Air Base in Iraq. And he, General Rand at the time was mentoring Troy and encouraging him that if he ever wanted to make general in his career in the Air Force, that he needed to have these combat flying hours. And so under his command, Troy would volunteer to go. His squadron at Luke Air Force Base was not being sent. He actually uh, went out and trained for a couple of weeks with the uh, squadron that was flying from Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. Um, and he flew one of their jets. But he was the only one from his squadron that went at the time. So what can you tell us now? Let's talk about, uh, I believe it's November 27th, 2006. There were, I don't know where you want to start, Rhonda, if you want to start with being notified or just maybe what you found out since. But he crashed or he was shot down. What, what can you tell us about that that day? <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's the question that still stands out there. Um Air Force is very adamant that he went down because he of target fixation, uh, that he was not shot down. He was flying with uh, in a two-jet formation with Michael Dietrich, who was his wingman. And at the time, there was um, some helicopters with uh, Task Force 161, and they were made up of some Air Force, Army, all of uh, different special forces. And one of their helicopters went down. And so they were stranded out in the uh, desert. And there was a ridge or mountain, kind of maybe a mountainous area or a like a, um, a quarry, like a rock quarry nearby where... Um, just hundreds of Al-Qaeda members mounted this ridge and started firing upon them. They had rocket-propelled grenades, small arms fire, mortars. They had uh, trucks with mounted heavy machine guns, and they were just being fired upon. There was 21, maybe 22. The, the count is not official. It's reported differently in different reports. Uh, 22 or 21 men on the ground at this time, and they were fighting back. Did they have any cover at all? No cover at all. They were out in the open, wide open. And so they were fighting. There was even um, one of the Little Bird helicopters, because it was a Little Bird that was hit, and the Little Bird would go, there were two of them, and, and the other Little Bird would go up and fire uh, all of the rounds that it had and then land again. Um, and they were taking ammunition off of the downed little bird using a Leatherman screwdriver, you know, just trying to get as much ammunition as they could so that they could fight back. So the whole time that this is going on, they're screaming into the radio, we need help. We need help. So help was coming. Um, there was a, a, a group that was out cl uh, clearing IEDs, an Army uh, group, and they were about 40 of them, and they were clearing IEDs. And, and they were coming from the other side of this ridge, and they were driving up. But 
they were engaged with the Al-Qaeda members. They just kind of turned to the other side of the ridge, and they were firing upon them. So they were in an attack. Um, at this time that all of this was going on, Troy was refueling. So his wingman was the only one there. The There were three trucks that had mounted machine guns on them, and they had gone to a certain building. To it, it just appeared like they continued to go to this building to get more ammunition. And so Task Force 161 requested bombs dropped on that one building. Um, and so in that conversation, there was some confusion with targeting that building or marking that building. Um, so there was a lot of um, screaming, um, a lot of fear because there was they were just running out of ammunition. Uh, and that was about the time that my brother finished, Troy finished refueling, and he flew back and he engaged in um, in the two-man formation. And he just came in very cool and calm and collected. He had a mission. He knew what he was doing. He was very much in control. Uh, the radio man on the ground has told us, you know, time and time again, they call him Frosty because he was so just cool and collected at this point. They dropped, uh, his wingman dropped the bombs on the building, um, and then his wingman had to fly off to get fuel, to refuel. So then Troy was left there by himself. He then got eyes on those three trucks, and it took a little bit of time because there were civilians in the area. And so once he identified the three trucks, he did not want to lose visual confirmation at any point. He engaged... He came strafing in with his 20-millimeter Gatling guns, and he took out one of the trucks. And then he made a low, tight turn, trying to maintain that visual contact, and came back around and began strafing once again, trying to take out another truck. What was his altitude? Honestly, I don't know. Um, I know that's in one of the reports, and I can get that if it's needed, but he was low. Um, the he, he was a couple hundred feet under where he should have been to make that low tight turn. And he chose to do that because he didn't want if he was if he was doing the typical turn, he would not be able to maintain the visual contact. And civilian civilian life was so precious to him. He didn't want to take out anybody um, in the area that was not associated with the attack. So he wanted to make sure that he maintained that that visual contact. So, you know, at this time, he is going in, strafing once again. And Betty, which is the, the alarm system within the plane, is, you know, screaming at him, you're too low, pull up. But his, his mission was to take out that truck. And so he did pull up, but unfortunately, it was just too late. His tail, when he pulled up, the tail of his plane hit the ground. And it was a, a farming field. Uh, he was further off um, from the quarry, and now he's into a field. His tail hits the, the ground, and then the belly of his plane slams down, and it skids for about 500 yards. Um, at that time, debris is just kind of going everywhere from the uh, plane. And so when the belly of his plane hits, his seat, the anchors of his seat, the force of that propels his seat up. He did not pull the ejection 
to eject her seat at any point, but it was that force of the impact of the belly of the plane hitting. And that shot his seat up, and um, as the canopy came up, it took off a portion of his scalp and um, some brain matter. And then he was ejected and rolled um, perpendicular to the crash. So the plane was going straight ahead, and he was shot off kind of at a perpendicular angle, and his body still uh, strapped into that seat, tumbled a few hundred yards in the in a perpendicular direction, um, and at that point his um, his parachute came out, but he didn't. He, we were told that he didn't pull the ejection handle. Mm-hmm. So were you, this point, Rhonda, were you told at what point he died? Was it at ejection? Do you know? It was immediately. Yeah, when his when his head hit that canopy, the edge of the canopy. He would have died immediately. Okay. And he would have had a helmet on, right? Yes. He he would have had a helmet on. Um, So the force of his um, seat coming up and then, I mean, hitting that canopy, it took the helmet off. Plus, it's just kind of, um, uh, how do you describe that? I don't know how to describe that. (laughs) That's okay. His body is out there. It's out there. And yes. no one else is around, at least no other Americans or um, you know, allies are out there. What happens? Um, so at this point, this draws the attention of all of those hundreds of Al-Qaeda members that were attacking. And they are drawn to the crash site. So they immediately go that direction. Um, they took with their phones videos of them celebrating as they stood on the wing of the plane and then continued to video. And you hear all of this um, uh, talking in the background or yelling, and then they all go running because at that point they found the pilot. They took pictures of that site, uh, of my brother on the ground, and um, that went on to the Internet as well as well as the video that was played many times. Um, but they, they at that point, then decided that this pilot would be our trophy. So the Al-Qaeda members got three trucks that were very similar and brought a rug and rolled my brother's body up in a rug and put it in these three trucks, one of the tr- three trucks, and then they took off. We did have eyes in the sky and one of those gentlemen in that plane that was watching the area did watch the trucks as they left and they watched as far as they possibly could but at that time there was still a very active site right there where task force 161 of those helicopters were still there still fighting you know they weren't safe yet they had to lose visual of the trucks that were carrying my brother. And um, and they had to let him go. So they drove off. So your family, from that point, when were y'all notified? And what did the Air Force tell you at first? That day, the Air Force sent men out to my sister-in-law uh, that morning. When, uh, it was a Monday morning. And... Um, they notified her that his plane had gone down. And um, 
they asked if they could call my parents. And so they called my mom and announced themselves as, you know, we're from the Air Force. We wanted to let you know your son's plane has gone down in Iraq and his body is missing. And this just, my mom happened to be, she had just baked my brother's bunch of cookies and she was getting into her car to drive to the post office to mail those cookies. And she received this call and was just absolutely devastated. But she also, she also held out hope because we weren't informed that he was deceased at this point. He was just missing. His body was missing. So my mom held out hope that he was still alive and that he had escaped. And that was the hope that she was holding on to. But she was devastated. So she ran over to her neighbor um, across the street. And her neighbor called my dad, who happened to be at work at Shepherd Air Force Base on a military Air Force flying installation. And my mom, uh, my mom's neighbor called him and had him come home. He was never called or notified. Yeah, it mm-hmm. that notification process, I, I just could have done so much better. Yeah. And then um, how did you find out? So my neighbor, uh, my mom's neighbor called me and I was sitting at work and I immediately left work and um, called my husband and we went home, packed a bag and headed to my mom's house. She lives about two hours away from us. Mm-hmm. So we immediately went there and then we just waited. We waited for more information and it just didn't come. And my mom, you know, we saw the first the first video on the news where the uh, Al-Qaeda was celebrating on the wing of the airplane. And so my mom said, no more, no more. So we didn't turn the news on or, or look at the Internet. Was that within tw- the same day or 24 hours from getting the call that his plane had gone down? Yes. you saw the news? Okay. Yes. God, that had to been awful. Immediately. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was on immediately. And that's why the Air Force had, that's the reason they said um, they had to rush the notifications because it was already hitting the news. Yeah. But it was on, so that was happening on a Monday. It was on Wednesday when my uncle finally called my mom um, because she was still holding on to this hope. And he directed us to this picture that was out there that uh, showed my brother. And you could see he was not, his because his scalp was gone. I mean, his brains were exposed, so he was not alive. And that was how we found out that he was dead. Did anywhere in that picture or that, that, that website say his name, or did they have a picture of his ID at that time? Not at that time. They were not displaying any of that information at that time. I mean, yeah, this, is just moment, this is just a couple of days. I'm sure the picture went up much faster, but, I mean, we saw it on Wednesday. Okay. So. so when you saw that picture... Two days later, did y'all all believe and accept that he had been killed? Yes. In our hearts, we realized he had. And then um, on Friday night, around midnight, we received the official knock on the door with the men in uniforms that came to notify us that they had recovered skull fragments and brain matter that was in that canopy the glass canopy um, still in there, and they were able to do DNA confirmation 
and recognized that he could not have survived without that uh, that brain matter. So that they said he was KIA at that point, killed in action. And Ron, I'm going to put this out there that there is so much to your story that we probably won't get to, but uh, that's yeah. why you need to write a book, or you got to you got to be able to tell this more. But I'm going to skip around some okay. because you've basically written a story to me that is just powerful. If we skip to March of 2007. Yes. So three, four months later, you get notified by the Air Force that there's a video that's going to be released, I think, by Al-Qaeda, right? Yes. Um, what can you tell us about that video? Is this, is the, is this the first video that that's actually where they're going to actually acknowledge him or his name? Yes, this is the, the first time they acknowledge his name, and, and it's the only video that is out there. But it is. It's it's about eight, nine minutes long. It is a, um, it's a propaganda video is what it is. And this video, it, it shows the building that was blown up and some um, children that were killed in that. It shows, it talks about uh, President Bush, bashes President Bush. And then it goes in and it talks about the pilot. And it shows Troy's I, military ID card. And it shows his, his name flashing across the screen. Um, but then it also shows his corpse. And um, at this point, his corpse was decaying, but it was building that gas up. So his, his head was very large and deformed, but he was still in his, his uh, pilot suit. You couldn't really tell it was him. But we could assume it was him. I mean, they had his military ID. It was an Air Force pilot suit. So this was actually in September. Is that right? September yeah. 11th, 2007 is when that video ended up being released? Yes. Wow. Was, yeah. Ten, nine or ten months later? Uh, yes. You said, this video was a gift and a curse. It was painful to watch and see my brother's remains treated in this manner. However, it gave me the opportunity to answer questions my mother had regarding my brother's body. She had fears, and this helped to calm those fears. What were those fears and questions that your mom had? She worried that they cut him into little pieces or that they, you know, they shot bullet wounds all over him or that that they had taken him apart, basically. <laughs> I mean, it was, um, or decapitated him. So to see his remains intact gave her peace that they didn't, I, I think it, it gave her peace that he did die on impact, that had he been alive, they may have tortured him. But it didn't appear that that they had gone through, done anything of that nature. Wow. See, that's something that I, I just don't know how many people would go there without experiencing it i can't imagine seeing your brother or your son's remains yeah. still it's been 10 months in the hands of evil people yeah. who are happy that they have his body that this as painful as that is you, you, your mom can still think well at least he wasn't tortured exactly so there were some difficulties with getting information from the Air Force and with and sometimes with it 
being relayed from Troy's wife, Ginger, to you and your family. That's very complicated, but I did want to say that they had five children. And how old was the oldest child? He was eight years old when they when he went down. Okay. You had three, at least three burial services, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> but in 2011, when our military was pulling out of Iraq, my mom began to question who would be looking for Troy at that point. And luckily, because Ginger had remarried, they were the, my parents were the point of contact and could make phone calls and start asking those questions. And so we called in and were told that Troy was accounted for. His DNA had been received. He had a grave site in Arlington National Cemetery. Um, what more? What more did we need? And so we explained that we have videos of his body and we would like all of him back. At that time, we knew we had to fight for Troy. We had to make a change. And that would require us to be very vocal about his body not being at Arlington National Cemetery. And we began a, um, an effort by writing our senators and congressmen and getting all of our friends involved to write all of their senators and congressmen. And anybody that would listen, um, I mailed out packages of information just requesting assistance. And I turned also to the media. And a friend of ours sang at the church, and he had told me when Troy first went down, if I ever need anything, to come to him. And I did. I turned to him at this point and asked him if he could help. He did an amazing interview, and it was the first time that we really got the information out there that Troy was missing. Ginger had made one statement earlier on in a, in a magazine article interview just a couple months prior but other than that we had never talked about his body being missing um, or that he was not account you know his his body wasn't here and that was out of respect for the kids and her choice not to tell them mm-hmm. but at this point we had to we had to speak out we needed assurances that he was going to be searched for and that if it took 50 years like so many other people people are still missing from, you know, all of the prior conflicts. We might be waiting 50 years. We didn't know. And so we had to speak out and we had to speak loud. And so we went ahead and did the interviews and it went um, uh, national. Um, And so that interview was shown multiple places. And unfortunately, it was seen by the kids. So there were many questions they had regarding some of the information there about their dad. Um, and that's that was when they found out that he wasn't completely um, accounted for. So something else here, an interesting dynamic, Rhonda, that you've lived through or, or maybe are living through is the spouse versus the parents and the sibling. What was that like and how have you felt through this? Well, up to this point, let's say up to this point in the story, mm-hmm. what's been the challenges and how have you and your parents felt with the information or lack thereof and and lack of involvement. Yeah. I think the dynamic of just 
the widow and the five young children changed everything. She has her support network that's always there and helping. Um, in the early days, the start differences between, you know, the parents' house where I was early on after that first phone call was quiet and we were just waiting for a single phone call versus once we got to to Phoenix for the first memorial service, uh, there was just a plethora of people and Air Force personnel and friends and families and church people and, and it was just so many people there taking you know notice uh, and, and trying to be helpful, I understand. But because the whole attention and focus was on taking care of the wife and the children, my parents were overlooked many, many times by the Air Force officials, um, by by um, well-wishers or, or people who were just uh, attending. Many times my parents were left out or overlooked. And myself, I was there supporting my parents. I was there because... I'm the only one left. I'm the rock, and I was doing everything I could to support them. So throughout this process, it's just been me looking out for what their needs are. And as a sibling, I'm completely, I'm lost. I don't know if I, I should I be included in this? Um, sometimes I'm included, sometimes I'm invited, sometimes I'm not. Uh, many times I might be included, but my husband and my children are not included. Um, you know, it's it's very confusing as where I stand in this process. And very heart heartbreaking. Yeah, I can only imagine. So in in February twenty fourth, two thousand twelve, you had a meeting with the Air Force Casualty and Mortuary, Mortuary Affairs. I don't know. This was just you. I don't think your parents were there. What were you when you were there with Todd Rose and the original? Well, we had a meeting on Friday, and my parents were there, and Ginger and her husband, my husband was there. We were we were all there at the actual meeting, and that's where they confirmed that the um, the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy had issued an exception to policy. For the DPMO or Defense Prisoner of War Missing Personnel Office to actively pursue Troy's case. So we were going through the details of that exception to policy in the meeting on Friday. It was the very next day that I attended myself to a family meeting. It was the uh, Oh, a family member update is what it's called. And there were about 350 people at this family member update. These are people that had lost loved ones in previous uh, conflicts. When the speaker got up, oh, hello, the medical examiner got up. When the medical examiner got up to speak, he said, I've got to cut this short because we just received remains from Iraq and I need to go and identify them. And my heart dropped at this point because there were only six missing people from Iraq and two of those were Navy pilots that went into the water. So the odds of it being them were not. So there was about four different people it could be. 
And I just, my palms were sweaty. I just, I could not wait for him to finish speaking so that I could ask the people at my table, is it Troy? And unfortunately, it wasn't. At that time, it wasn't him. I'm going to read this, if you don't mind, what you said about it. My heart began to race, my eyes began to water, and my palms began became sweaty. As soon as he finished speaking, I asked those very calm people at my table what this meant. Was it Troy? Oh, no, it was Staff Sergeant Altai, if I'm saying that right. News reports later stated, quote, The Army has identified the remains of the last missing American service member in Iraq. A Shiite extremist group handed over a wooden casket containing the remains of Staff Sergeant Ahmed Altai, last missing American service member, cut through my heart. I was enraged that everyone at that table knew those remains from Iraq were flying in and not a single one of them thought to warn me. Yes. How could they say the last, the last missing American service member in Iraq? How could they do that? Because Troy was not considered. He was an exception to policy. He wasn't considered in, in their minds as being missing. And that's part, but you know, that's part on us. We knew he was missing for, you know, six years and we didn't scream. We didn't remind people. We didn't say it over and over and over again. And if we're not saying it, who else is going to be saying it? Yeah. So right. as, as a family, I just felt like we failed Troy at that point. So let's move to November of 2013. So this is now six years, I believe, right? Yes. Ginger called and told us the military received five bones from my brother's right foot. Something interesting here is you're excited to get some more information, some more parts of Troy, but then you're wondering, wait a minute, why is she calling us? I thought that we, that my parents were now the the primary. What do they call the primary point of contact? Point of contact. So you got some some kind of, I guess, promising news. Maybe some more answers, I should say. But mm-hmm. once again, the Air Force had kind of failed on how they deliver the information. Yes. Yeah, my parents were never notified that they were no longer the point of contact. And that was really important for my parents because it meant that they had a say in their son's life and death and how this proceeded forward. And so we were never, they were never notified. So it was very shocking when Ginger called. And as excited as I was to have some more remains, I was just very confused. And and those bones actually ended up not being Troy's, correct? Those bones were Troy's. They were, okay. So those bones had been turned into the Iraqi government who gave them to the Turkish government who then gave them to the U.S. government. And our government held on to them. It took about 18 months before they actually turned them over to be buried because they were chasing down leads. They thought they really thought they had a good lead and that they could recover more remains. And they hoped to get all of him back at that point. They did chase down those leads, but the lead led to some remains that were not Troy's. So they went ahead and gave us the bones. Okay. You said that I often wonder if the Iraqi that held these bones saw the news report with my mother begging for her son's return. 
Yeah. We saw their videos. Why wouldn't they see ours? What did your mom say in that video? Oh, she said, I think she said there's 1% of him here, but there's 99% of him over there and we want him back. And I truly believe that with the internet, that video made it over there. And I truly believe in the power of media. And I believe that they returned those in. They were holding them as a, uh, as a side trophy. Those were the bones that would have fallen off first once his remains decayed. And we know that his remains were being used as a trophy and they were being passed from sheik to sheik and held as a trophy. So maybe in the transportation, some of those bones fell off. But whoever had them, um, the timing of that turning those over was very close to the time when our interview aired and my mom made that plea. I'm sure that was a powerful moment. It makes me think of parents whose children have been kidnapped and their plea pleading with whoever the captors to let them go. Maybe it's different, but that's just what I think of because I've rarely, I don't know that I've ever heard of, heard someone like your mother have to plead for their son's body to be returned. Yes. And even Fox and Friends and other news sources reported that Troy's complete remains were returned. And it yes. simply wasn't the case. It was not the case. It was just some remains. It was five toe bones that were returned. And so we celebrated the fact that the bones were returned, but then we also realized our job's not done because it's not all of him. And that's what we wanted was all of him. So each time you got these remains back, did they they pulled his casket out of the ground at Arlington and put them in there? Or how, how did that work? No, the second so for the second burial with the five toe bones, we just put it into a small wooden box and buried that on top of the casket. Okay. We did go out for a a service, and we had another burial service there at his site. Okay. On September of 2016, that was just about 10 years since his death. That's when his full body was returned. Is that right? Well, yes. In September is when they, they went on the mission. We got the call October 1st. We got called that they had all of Troy. So on September 30th, a team was able to recover his, and again, it was Task Force 161 that actually went in and recovered his remains. The same task force that Troy was defending when he went down huh. retrieved him. Yeah, so they had a, um, they, they got a lead and they followed it up and um, were able to confirm that the lead was accurate and the bones were Troy's and essentially sent in some guys and maybe not so politely asked for his remains back. And, and they were still in Iraq? They were still in Iraq, yes. Okay. A, um, a sheik had them. Good grief. Do they still have his clothes, his flight suit? He, he, yes. Yeah, in fact, um, we received his flight jacket. The mortuary services, when they prepared his body, um, they took that flight jacket and washed it 
I don't remember how many times they actually said they had to clean it, but they got it to a state that they were able to give that to Ginger and the kids. And so the boys have that jacket. Oh, wow. So on October 3rd, 2016, Major Troy, Trojan, Bubba, Baloney Kid, Gilbert returned to U.S. soil. We were all at Dover to finally welcome him home. <laughs> yes. Are those all the names you called him or just various people called him? Those are my names. <laughs> really? <laughs> I called him Bubba all the time um, growing up. And then his CB handle was Baloney Kid. He had a CV, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. One of those big whip antennas, too? <laughs> well, that, that was when we were kids in my dad's truck. Um, my dad had a CB, so. <laughs> How has Troy's death affected your parents and uh, well has, has how has it affected them as far as them being grandparents right after uh for many many years the grief was too much um and they they did everything they could to maintain the relationship initially with uh, ginger and the kids and to be involved but throughout the years and throughout all of this process and and the remains and the funerals and and everything that goes along with it, that relationship has disintegrated. Um, even with my children, that uh, my boys are 11 years old now, they, they were born three years after my brother died. Um, there were many years that we didn't have good relationships and they weren't able to be actively involved in my children's life. Thankfully, with the return of all of Troy's remains, they could they could close that chapter. They could start healing. Grief is funny, and they had such a delayed grief for 10 years because of everything we've been through that it wasn't until we, we really got all of Troy back that they were able to start living again and to start really being very active and and I am so thankful now that I have a good relationship with them and my children do um, as well and we're able to do things and go places you haven't seen your nieces and nephews and not near as often now right yeah they um, they had moved to San Antonio which was just about five hours from us and I was able to drive down and see them on a semi-regular basis but they moved to Nashville, Tennessee about four years ago, or three years ago now. And since they've been in Nashville, I have not been able to get out there to see them and have not seen them here in Texas at all. So you went through three funerals, or at least three funerals in Arlington, is that right? Yes. My brother is the only person out of 450,000 buried at Arlington National Cemetery that was buried three times. Wow. He has five children. They're Boston, yes. Annalise, Grayson, Isabella, and Aspen. Is that right? It is, but we'll say it in a different order. It's Boston, Grayson, Isabella, Aspen, and Annalise. Okay. They've been well taken care of. The um, Special Operations War Foundation or Folds of Honor has been multiple organizations that have been very good to them. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Good, good. In the, in the process, though, as a sibling, you know, 
me as a Gold Star brother. So you and I served together on the Air Force Survivor Advocacy Council. So we've heard various stories uh, with families and what they deal with with the death of uh, an active service member. But how have you done? How are you doing with all this? And did you have you done any better since the third funeral? Did that help you at all, or did it change things? It did help. It helped a lot because I could find peace. In 2011, when I let, when I fought for Troy to get a status changed, I had young children, and I was every waking moment working on that project. I spent hours kind of combing the Internet, trying to make sure that information out there is not going to um, – that my nieces and nephews or my boys will never Google their, you know, their father or uncle's name and find something inappropriate or this video that has been released. I've done a, you know, a lot of work trying to make sure that that is no longer out there and available to them. So to have that third funeral meant that I could rest. I could be at peace because my work was done and he was home. And so I was able also to begin the healing process and really, honestly, not the healing process, the grieving process. I delayed my grief for so many years because I was constantly taking care of my parents Mm -hmm. or, you know, making sure that they were they were in a good place. And so siblings always have delayed grief because that is our role. That is our job is to make sure mom and dad are okay, make sure anybody else is okay. So we typically do have a delayed grief, but mine was just extended even longer. It wasn't um, It wasn't until the third funeral that I even joined a grief group like TAPS and started kind of working on that process a little bit. What about your marriage during that time, Rhonda, when you were spending all those hours and you had young children? What kind of toll did that take on your marriage, or did it? My husband has been my rock. He has walked every step of this road with me, and he has been there for any time that I needed to cry or scream or rant or rave. Um, So he has supported me 100% in anything that I do. Yeah, it's incredible. That's good to hear. Yes. (laughs) What else would you like to say about Troy or about the the whole situation? You know, the whole situation is, it's been a lot harder than anybody knows because it's been so long and because there's so many different steps and, you know, grief is hard to go through the the process when the scabs keep pulling, getting pulled off. And so many people have told my parents and told myself, you just need to get over it. You just need to get past it. And yet we were stuck in this rut because the healing couldn't happen. And I know there's so many people out there that are in the same situation or a similar situation because they've, their lost one will never be recovered. Um, So it's hard. And I understand that my brother was an amazing man. He was selfless. He served others constantly. As a, as a husband, he was eager to come home from work and cook dinner. As a father, he would bathe the kids and, you know, do ballet or, or play 
soccer or anything, read books, do just be involved. He always wanted to be involved. Um, he was an incredible Christian. He uh, started the Welcome Center at his church. He was there to greet people and to be involved. When he went to Iraq, he went by himself. He flew with the uh, medics out of San Antonio, and he got to know some of them. So any time in Iraq, if he wasn't flying, then he was at the hospital helping the doctors and nurses and staff. He would mop up blood. He would help in a surgery. One of the surgeons said he was wasted as a pilot because he could have been a great surgeon. Hmm. He just gave his heart constantly trying to help people. Um, he, he volunteered at the church um, and to just make sure that he was never afraid to reach out to any one of his friends and say, how are you doing and how is your walk with Christ? He even noticed uh, that he hadn't seen some of his friends at church in Iraq. Hadn't, so he, he reached out and said, hey, have you found a service that you're happy with? Would you like to join me and come? I've been going to the 11 o'clock service over here. Um, so he encouraged others to continue to worship and to uh, walk that walk with Christ. He was, he was known to be the officer everybody could count on because he would always put service over self. He was amazing. He was amazing and, and a wonderful husband, father, son, brother, and, uh, and we miss him. What role has your faith played in your handling and recovery the last 15 years? Oh, wow. Um, so right before Troy died, I had gone on a walk to Emmaus, which is a very close, um, just getting my Christian relationship with, with Jesus and getting to know him and understand that personal relationship side. And in that, I learned about a Bible study, um, Bible study fellowship. I had joined Bible study fellowship the month before Troy went down. And so I was in the middle of, of studying Romans and just Romans 818 that, you know, the suffering that we will undergo in life here on earth will pale in comparison to the joy we're going to have in heaven is a summary of that. And it just, it has fueled me throughout all of these years. And I continue to go to Bible study and just be involved with my church and with the word, because that's the only piece that I have had throughout this is to be able to turn back and focus on that on a regular basis. How did you persevere through it though? Did you ever doubt did you ever get angry, you know, at God? And how did you just persevere through the dadgum 10 years of fighting and conflict, you know, and being conflicted like what do I do? I want to I want to speak out, I want to yell from the rooftops. How did you like internally just keep going and keep being a strength to your parents? Early on, about 3 months after Troy's death, a good friend of mine took me aside and and said, that's it, I'm calling my therapist, and you're going. And um, so she hooked me up with a great Christian therapist, and I spent about a year with uh, this amazing woman, and I could bring 
anything to her, and she would help me walk through and figure out how to move forward. She really laid a good basis, a good foundation for me to recognize that where I needed help and that I had to feed myself and pour into myself in order to continue to give out to um, to others. So that was that was the basis. And then going forward, um, being in in BSF and and I have my really good strong group of friends that um, I know at any point I can turn to them and share with them and have them pray for me. Um, so I have my network, my close network that has been on this road in this journey with me for 10 years. So I, I lean into them. And then just being able, my relationship with Christ is strong enough that I can just sit in my room and scream and, you know, and, and talk to him on, on a very frank basis when I'm very upset or very um, um, stressed out about what's going on and it's un, and, and just everything that, that happens along the way so that I don't feel... I feel like I get strength from that, that ability to know he hears me. He hears my uh, my concerns. He hears my joys. He hears my um, my frustration. And, and throughout all of it, I can still praise him because I know that he will work all things for his good. And he has given us the gifts of seeing the good that he has worked out in this. The number of people that have told us, I have accepted Christ because of your brother. I didn't know your brother, but I know his story. Or I worked on the search, the search for him, and I became to Christ because I know his, his, his character, his reputation. There are so many stories of people that have benefited in the fact that they are now have eternal life in Christ because of my brother's crash. And so I see some of the the good that he is using this horrible cir- circumstance and he's making good out of it. And I know he'll continue to do that. You ever feel that he's near you? Absolutely. Yeah, I believe you. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he's involved <laughs> more than I would imagine he's involved more than you even maybe realize. You know, the same with my brother or other loved ones, you know, that we we have. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a whole nother discussion. But man, that's um, that's powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Do you think that for us as the the I don't know the inaugural Air Force Survivor Advocacy Council, I guess council the group, we're the first ones. You and me are among I think it's about twelve of us or so. Yes. Why did you want to be on it, and what did you bring to the Air Force? Because we've met with the, the top dogs. Mm-hmm. What was your what message did you, did you want to get to them? My initial message was that I believe the parents should have equal information, and they should be treated equally along with the spouse. That in any kind of notification, or whether there is a a bridge dedication or a naming ceremony or anything that honors the fallen airmen that the parents also should be notified. Um, I wanted to make sure that as parents, you know, that they are recognized. They are the ones that brought this person into the world. 
and they should still be honored and recognized throughout the process. 100% agree. What have they said in our updates? It all comes down to the database or this new software that they're implementing that all of the different services can then track and, and have the information. Um, and so once that is implemented, that then the parents will be more will be able to have more information along the way. Well, that is an excellent fight, and I'm so glad that you're on the council and can share that because when I when we met in D.C. last year, I was I, I mean my jaw was almost on the floor hearing some of the stories. So thankful that I've been able to meet people like you and the group and to hear the challenges that other people have experienced because. My experience has been much different. Yeah. <laughs> um, but man, these things need to be brought to light to the Air Force and to my listeners. Your brother died a hero, and he really was a great man in so many ways. And that's not because he was killed; it's because of how he lived his life. And yes. um, thanks for sharing some with him, some of him with us. And and Ron, I know there's a there's a ton more that we could talk about. And thank you for helping me share or share a story we've we got to get more out there i think you've got a you got a, i don't know start a youtube channel you got to write a book i don't know what but this is a powerful story my heart is kind of racing so i'm looking forward to getting this launched awesome thank you so much for telling it i you know it it's a hard story to tell it's a hard story to relive but i think it is important and i just appreciate you so much of just being willing to go there with me. It took a while for both of us. <laughs> it did. It took, well, and, and this is the catalyst that got me to writing because, because it's hard. It's, you know, and, and we have been told stuff that we can't repeat. And it's hard to decipher what can I, re, what can I share and what can I not share. And so everything has to go through a filter, whether I'm writing it down or I have I'm saying it out loud. I have to constantly think, is this something I can share? Is this something I've been asked not to? So. Wow. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much. Keep up the great fight. Thanks, Dad. 